From atmospheric rivers in January to tornadoes and wildfires in December, we can no longer speak of a disaster season. We now face intensified natural disasters throughout the year, often in places that are not used to experiencing them. Well, they better get used to experiencing it. Of course, she's the FEMA director. You know, she's big disaster. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's how she makes her I money. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It's like she's rooting I'm for so disaster. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Am I wrong? And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Yeah, I'm wrong. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. I am... From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day. On the internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing planet Earth. Not that it needs a blanket. I'm Brad <laughs> Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. And, of course, my apologies to FEMA director Deanne Criswell for uh, pointing her out at the top of the show there. <laughs> yes, as part of Big Disaster. <clears throat> big Disaster. That's all. That's all it's about. That's all they're trying... We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, yes. One quick story here. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. One quick story, I promise, about the former guy. Before we move on to a few other things today, since we covered him quite a bit yesterday, and uh, frankly, even when there are stories about him finally beginning to you know, get his, his due, his, his comeuppance, I can still generally use a day or two between... Too many references to him. I don't know about you. I, I suspect that that may become harder and harder, by the way, as the weeks and months continue here as, and as the indictments pile up and the yeah. trials begin. But listen, for now, for today at least, just one quick story. Presuming nothing else of note breaks between now and the end of today's show, knock wood. <laughs> Yesterday, among uh, many other things we covered, Donald Trump's failed Hail Mary attempt to toss out the criminal investigation against him in Georgia and to have Fulton County D.A. Fonnie Willis removed from that investigation in a filing that he made with the Georgia State Supreme Court. And that state Supreme Court unanimously rejected that Hail Mary motion. Well, today, Trump's Hail Mary attempt to get rid of his 34-count indictment in New York State in relation to the hush money payments made to Stormy Daniels to help him win the 2016 presidential election. 
Uh, that was also rejected, in this case, in federal court. A judge on Wednesday denied former President Donald Trump's request to move the Manhattan criminal case against him from state to federal court. Trump's lawyers had argued that the case should be heard in federal court because the charges related to conduct that he engaged in while president. That conduct, of course, uh, included writing personal checks to cover up the hush money scheme concerning an affair he was having with a porn star, uh, and the checks were written to cover it up while he was in office. Good Lord. So he argued, well, that was official business as president or something. In the order, Judge uh, Hellerstein, Alvin K. Hellerstein, was not having it. In the order, he echoed his contention at the hearing on this matter that Trump's lawyers had failed to show that the behavior at issue, reimbursements to Mr. Trump's former fixer, Michael Cohn, for the hush money payments, was somehow related to the office of the presidency. Judge Hellerstein wrote that the evidence overwhelmingly suggested that the matter involved something personal to the president, quote, a cover-up of an embarrassing event. Hush money paid to an adult film star is not related to a president's official acts, the judge concluded in the order. It does not reflect in any way the color of the president's official duties. You think? A spokesperson for the uh, Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin Bragg, said, quote, We are very pleased with the federal court's decision, and we look forward to proceeding in New York State Supreme Court. So, as I understand it, what happened here was Trump had been, uh, it was trying to move the case from state to federal court, and had he been successful at that, the federal government then would have essentially taken his place as plaintiff because the DOJ represents the president in lawsuits that are brought against a president when they're, you know, presidenting, when they're <laughs> actually doing presidential duties. Right. Uh, if you sue the president for something, uh, the president himself or herself does not have to, you know, go to court. The DOJ does instead. So essentially, had he been able to move the this case, this Alvin Bragg case in New York state from state court to federal court, it would have been a literal get out of jail free card mm. for him. And it didn't work any better than pretty much all of the desperate Hail Mary efforts to avoid criminal accountability that he has tried so far. In the uh, so far 71 felony charges that are currently filed against him at both the state and federal level, with more almost certainly coming soon. So another bad day, another bad legal day for Donald J. Trump. Uh, but we are always happy to cover such things. <laughs> Indeed. And <clears throat> I'm, I'm so far, I'm glad that so far the courts are holding. You're getting it right. We'll see how long that lasts. Yep. In other news in which Republicans are hoping to avoid the inevitable via arguably ridiculous Hail Mary schemes, the GOP has decided they are not climate change deniers after all, apparently. <laughs> they have. Don't laugh. You don't even know where I'm going. 
they uh, have uh, they have a plan. They have a plan for uh, for fighting climate change. Des uh, oh, House goody. House Republicans are now proposing that we plant a trillion trees. According to AP this afternoon, see, you're not laughing now, are you? As uh, Speaker as Speaker Kevin McCarthy visited a natural gas drilling site in Northeast Ohio to promote House Republicans' plan to sharply increase domestic production of energy from fossil fuels last month, the signs of rising global temperatures could not be ignored. Smoke from Canadian wildfires hung in the air at this event. When the speaker was asked about climate change and forest fires, he was ready with an answer. Plant a trillion trees. Well, that should do it. <laughs> the, uh, the idea, s- simple yet massively ambitious, as AP describes it, uh, revealed uh, recently uh, how Republicans are thinking about addressing climate change. The party is no longer denying that global warming exists, yet is searching for a response to sweltering summers, weather disasters, rising sea levels that does not include, you know, the thing that all the climate scientists say we must do, which is, you know, abandoning their enthusiastic support for burning oil, coal and gas. Quote, we need to manage our forests better So our environment can be stronger, McCarthy said, apparently picking up from Donald Trump's uh, we need to sweep the forest floor better strategy of of fighting the climate crisis. And then McCarthy added, quote, let's replace Russian natural gas with American natural gas. And let's not only have a cleaner world, let's have a safer world. Now, I'm not a climate scientist, but I'm unclear how replacing one country's natural gas with another country's natural gas actually gives us a cleaner world but it will result in more profits for McCarthy's campaign funders of course in the in the fossil fuel industry so there is that yes of course now scientists uh, overwhelmingly agree that heat trapping gases released from the burning of fossil fuels are pushing up global temperatures upending weather patterns around the globe endangering animal species but the solution long touted by democrats and Scientists and environmental advocates, you know, government action to help reduce emissions, that's still a non-starter among Republicans. So enter the idea of planting a trillion trees. On its own, not a terrible idea. Trees are very nice. They do suck up uh, carbon out of the atmosphere. 2019 study suggested that planting trees to to do exactly that, to suck up heat uh, trapping CO2 from the atmosphere could be an effective way to help fight climate change. Major conservation groups at the time and even former President Donald Trump, who downplayed humanity's role in climate change, as AP uh, describes it. That's a nice way for them to say that he called it a total hoax by China, actually. Uh, They all (laughs) embrace the idea of planting trees, but the idea has drawn some pushback from environmental scientists who call it a distraction from what needs to be done, which is cutting emissions. Exactly. The authors, in fact, of the original study that uh, these folks are citing here have also clarified that planting trees does not eliminate, quote, the urgent need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. By the way, uh, as AP notes, 
planting one trillion trees would also require a lot of space. Yes, it does. How much space? Well, roughly the size of the continental United States. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, and, and, and One gets the sense yeah. that the Republicans didn't actually, like, read any information Think on this, this proposal. Think this through, yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, also, as AP notes, more trees could actually increase the risk of, you guessed it, wildfires <laughs> by serving as fuel in a warming world. Yes. But even this plan, House Republicans, uh, you know, they have a bill that would both plant trees and radically expand fossil fuel production at the same time. Even that is a non-starter for a, a number of Republicans that still do not agree that there is any need to address climate change at all. This is true. The, you know, the AP saying that they mostly don't deny climate change anymore is absolutely untrue. Yeah. Well, apparently they, they just throw in a bone at it. Well, let's plant some trees. Right. That'll do it. But even even that's not good enough for guys like Scott uh, Perry, Congressman Scott Perry, I believe, of the uh, Coal Love in Pennsylvania, yep. if I'm remembering correctly. So he leads the uh, hard right House Freedom Caucus. And in a hearing on Thursday, he alleged that the Biden administration's climate agenda was tackling, quote, a problem that doesn't exist. He went on to declare without any evidence that global leaders pushing to reduce carbon dioxide emissions are, quote, grifting. It's like back to the future here, yes, isn't it, it is. man? They just repeat the same old stuff. Same crap same that was debunked nonsense. 10, 15, 20 years ago. So in the meantime, the problem that doesn't exist sure seems to be causing a whole lot of problems for a whole lot of people today, both in the U.S. and around the world. Again, today. Uh, there is no relief in sight from sweltering temperatures for millions around the globe today as record high temperatures are expected to continue into the weekend. In the U.S., more than 70 million people today are under heat alerts from Florida to California in this problem that doesn't exist. Some places, such as Texas and Arizona, have experienced a weeks-long heat streak with temperatures climbing above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. In Phoenix, they have now shattered their all-time days in a row with record temperatures above 110 degrees. I think they are on day 20 at this point with no end in sight. Yes. But it's not just here, it's around the world. Firefighters in Greece continue to battle wildfires for a third consecutive day with thousands of people now evacuated because of the heat and the fires. With temperatures forecast to continue to rise there, at least 66 wildfires broke out in the last 24 hours, the fire service said, if only they would sweep their forest floors. In Italy... A total of 23 out of 27 major Italian cities are now on, quote, red alert due to the heat wave that has gripped the country for weeks now. Italy's health ministry uh, uh, said in their latest bulletin, nine regions in France were placed under warning for intense heat on Thursday. 17 countries in all in Europe alone are now under high temperature alerts. As CNN warns, if you're planning to visit one of the affected destinations during extreme heat this summer, whether it's Arizona or Italy, it's unlikely you're going to be able to stick to your original travel plans. 
In areas with scorching temperatures, travelers may struggle to sightsee at their usual pace, and they may need to adapt or scrap itineraries entirely, especially those with chronic health conditions or in high-risk categories, such as older people and young children. So, yeah, pretty much everyone. The first week of July, it turns out, was the hottest week ever recorded on planet Earth, data shows. Well, this is uh, quite, quite, a, quite a bit of a problem for something that isn't really a problem. <laughs> Back here in the U.S., there were more than 20 daily high temperatures tied or broken on Tuesday, according to the National Weather Service, in Texas, in California, in Arizona, and elsewhere, including in Phoenix, which hit 118 degrees crushing the previous record that was 115 degrees for that day. There are 75 potential high temperature records that could be tied or broken through Saturday. There could be more than 95 record high minimum temperature uh, records that are broken through Saturday, which is especially dangerous. Yeah, those are the high overnight temperatures. When they say high minimums, that sounds mm -hmm. like a contradiction. A high overnight temperature that makes it much more difficult for people's bodies to cool down, which is mm -hmm. why an extended prolonged heat wave with these very high overnight temperatures actually increases mortality events, heart attacks, risks of stroke, and yep. other heat-related illnesses, and tends to overwhelm hospitals where this is going on. In total, there were more than 170 potential temperature records, both high and low temperature records that could be broken through Saturday with nearly 70 million people under heat alerts from Florida to California. But as Congressman Scott Perry informs us, it's a problem that doesn't exist. The problem that doesn't exist, that unrelenting and deadly heat wave across much of the U.S. is now in its 39th consecutive day. It could linger until August. Since the first heat alerts went out on June 10, more than 2,300 heat records have been broken from Florida to California. Now, I just want to point out, this extended heat dome over the United States mm -hmm. started in late June, and they're talking about it lasting through early August. And uh, but Some good news on that heat dome, I think. It will uh, finally begin to shift as we head into next week. That may offer some heat relief to the deep south, though not here in Southern California. Temperatures are going to spike uh, out here next week. But the shift will also implicate new areas in the plains, like Billings, Montana, which could hit 99 degrees over the weekend. Wow. Summer in the Northern Hemisphere is playing out like an apocalyptic movie, Laura Pattison reports, a tale of heat, floods, and fires. But scientists warn this may only be a preview of the unpredictable chaos to come if the world continues to pump out uh, planet-heating pollution. In a statement on Tuesday, Pateri Tallis Secretary General of the World Meteorological Organization called the relentless cascade of extreme weather, quote, the new normal. But some scientists now balk at that framing, said uh, Hannah Cloak, a climate scientist and professor at the University of Reading in the UK, quote, when I hear it, I get a bit crazy because it's not really the new normal. Until we stop pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, we have no idea what the future looks like. She's one of many scientists who warn that while this summer is very bad, it's only just the beginning. 
Would you all prefer that I go back to talking about Donald Trump now instead? <laughs> Dr. Michael Mann, a uh, climate scientist and distinguished professor, professor at the University of Pennsylvania, not to mention a longtime friend of the broadcast, prefers to describe the weather we are seeing now as, quote, the new abnormal. The new normal, he says, wrongly conveys the idea that we've arrived in some new climate state and that we simply have to adapt to it. But, he says, it's much worse than that. The impacts become worse and worse as fossil fuel burning and warming continues. It's a shifting baseline of ever more devastating impacts as long as the Earth continues to warm. And he also, so do other climate scientists, point out that we do have some control, some influence over this. Uh, once we stop putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, then this heating, this warming will begin to ease. Or, you know, we could just keep burning more fossil fuel. Or that. And, you know, as long as we plant a few trees, am I right, Kevin McCarthy? That's all we got to do. So, yeah, for these scientists, for scientists like Mann and, and Cloak, this year's extreme weather has largely not been surprising. In fact, they have been warning about exactly this for years. As I should note, have we on this program and on Desi Doyen's Green yep. News Report. But those scientists, uh, you know, have been attacked uh, mercilessly as chicken littles, as making up the science, as faking the science, as radical liberals simply trying to undermine the good, hardworking people in the fossil fuel industry. As grifters, right. as Scott Perry says. As people who just want to actually harm the country and its economy, who want people to suffer. And we hear that today. But these folks have been targeted. We, you know, Michael Mann wrote a whole book on how he and his uh, family had been specifically, personally targeted by these folks. And the idea that they want, you know, that they want people to suffer, well, the people uh, who are suffering now. Uh, those are real people, and it ain't the scientists' fault that they are suffering by the millions all around the globe. Regionally, the scientists concede there have been, quote, some remarkable anomalies, according to Mann, who pointed to record low levels of winter sea ice in Antarctica and off-the-charts heat in the North Atlantic. He says they are a reminder that we cannot expect to see records broken, but see them shattered if we continue burning fossil fuels. There are also off the charts uh, temperatures off the coast of Florida and Louisiana right now, even as hurricane season is just getting underway. And at the same time, major insurance companies are now fleeing those states saying that they can no longer afford to insure homes in Florida as storms continue to get worse and worse in the Sunshine State, where climate change deniers like Governor Ron DeSantis have been helping to make things worse and worse. So what does this mean for homeowners who can't find affordable insurance in the state anymore? And what does it mean for the federal government, who will have to pick up a lot more pieces the next time another record storm blows through? And how long will it be before you can't find insurance where you live or your insurance rates skyrocket because of all of this? And what will all of these 
problems that don't exist actually due to the housing market itself in Florida and elsewhere. For answers to some of those questions and more, let's take a quick break and we'll be joined by someone who has been covering and warning about these very concerns for quite some time. Pulitzer Prize finalist Thomas Frank of e e News joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate and thanks. Riders on the storm. Riders on the storm. Welcome back. Brad Cass, Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. In late September last year, Hurricane Ian, an incredibly powerful climate change intensified Category 4 storm, leveled parts of Fort Myers, Cape Coral and Naples, Florida. It swept away homes, roads, infrastructure, a major bridge near the coast and resulted in major flooding far inland where most residents do not even have flood insurance, as we reported at the time. We posited that a relative lull in major hurricane landfalls in the Sunshine State may have, prior to last year's storm, induced a false sense of security for many Floridians across the state. Over the past nearly two decades, hundreds of thousands of new residents have flocked to the state as real estate developers, in concert with state and local officials, fueled a building boom that placed even more homes and businesses and people in harm's way. That, as the state's largely Republican leadership, took extraordinarily deceptive pains to deny the realities of our worsening climate crisis. Florida's governor and presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis had actually spearheaded an initiative to bar the state from even considering environmental factors like climate risks in its investment of billions of dollars of retirement savings of teachers and firefighters and other government workers. Well, that sounds like DeSantis, who by September of last year, as he was running for re-election about five weeks later and anticipating this year's presidential run, had received more than $800,000 $800, by then in campaign cash from oil and gas industry donors. Yet, damage from Hurricane Ian at the time was estimated by Moody's Analytics to clock in at around, well, at least $50 billion in a state where Florida's insurance market had long been buckling as previous storm payouts had caused many of the major insurance companies to simply flee the state entirely. In many cases, Florida homeowners were left in the hands of small in-state insurers with limited resources, six of whom had declared insolvency before Ian even made landfall in the state last year, and where homeowners were already paying nearly triple the national average for homeowners insurance. 
That according to data from the Insurance Information Institute. As the waters off the coast of southern Florida this summer have been pushing an extraordinary 95 degrees at times, temperatures that could boost any incoming storms to epic proportions, Governor DeSantis seems to be trying to, uh, well, whistle past both a figurative and perhaps literal graveyard, turning to superstitions rather than actual action to protect millions of Floridians. On our right-wing radio show last week, which we snarkily referenced in our most recent Green News report, DeSantis downplayed the continuing exodus of the last of the major insurance companies from the state. Last week, Farmers. This week, AAA. At a time when this year's storm season is only just beginning, suggesting that somehow with some tweaks to Florida law, the risk environment will become more favorable for insurers, though only after this year's hurricane season has passed. It now is more economical for companies to come in. I think they're going to wait through this hurricane season. Knock on wood, we won't have a big storm uh, this summer. And then I think you're going to start to see companies see an advantage. Sure. Knock on wood. Everything, I'm sure, will be fine. In the meantime, with storms churning in the Atlantic and waters continuing to warm off the coast, Florida homeowners are uncertain where to turn. Home insurance costs are on the rise almost everywhere across the country, driven in part by weather-related disasters. Thanks to climate change, those extreme weather events are happening more frequently and with greater intensity now pretty much everywhere across the country and indeed across the globe. Nationally, insurance premiums are projected to climb 7% this year. Thank a fossil fuel industry executive and the politicians near you who continue to do their bidding in exchange for campaign funds. But in areas of high risk for weather-related disasters like Florida, the numbers will be far higher still. That is, if you can even find a premium at all. Florida homeowners will now see premiums rise by 40% this year. In Louisiana, coverage is up by 60%. If you can't get insurance, you can't get a mortgage. The entire housing market, especially in states like Ron DeSantis's Florida, could be at stake. Following his seemingly laissez-faire remarks last week on right-wing radio, critics have condemned DeSantis' approach, leaving homeowners and businesses at the moment out in the cold for insurance, even as the planet continues to warm in this summer of record extremes, with skyrocketing insurance rates hitting extremes themselves, along with the temperature records. And many unable to afford coverage at all. They, too, are being forced to knock on wood and hope for the best. Our insurance went up another $1,600. They're canceling our insurance. We'd like to be able to pay a premium, but we've got no place to go to get insurance. Democratic freshman Florida Congressman Maxwell Frost was just one of those critical of DeSantis's hope for the best approach in the Sunshine State. Knock on wood. This isn't what we should be hearing from our leaders. Just hope that a hurricane doesn't come. That's That doesn't cut it. It's not enough. And disqualifying as a leader, I'd say the same thing if he was a Democrat. Well, don't worry. If homeowners can't get insurance in Florida and the next storm hits, no doubt the Republicans who run the state, the ones who like to slam the federal government, will in fact turn to that same federal government 
to bail them out, specifically to the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA. But as Thomas Frank reported last week at e News, lawmakers in Congress have so far failed to refill FEMA's disaster relief fund after a spate of disasters that left the fund expected to run out of money entirely as early as next month. When new storms in the Atlantic, fires out west, and flooding seemingly everywhere these days could put the nation's ability to backstop state governments at new risk. That, as the U.S. has seen a drastic increase in billion-dollar weather disasters, disasters that cause more than a billion dollars in damage and losses in each storm. Back in the 1980s, as we recently noted on the Green News Report, The U.S. used to see a billion-dollar weather disaster on average every 82 days. Now, billion-dollar weather disasters occur on average every 18 days. That's just one of the data points that led the Biden administration's FEMA director, Deanna Criswell, to warn of its disaster relief fund running dry unless Congress takes action. So what's the holdup there? Joining us for insight on all of this entire fine mess is Thomas Frank of E&E News, where he is a climate impacts reporter focusing on the federal response to climate change, as well as disasters, disaster recovery, equity in federal programs. Before joining E&E, he reported for USA Today and uh, several local outlets. He was also a Pulitzer Prize finalist for his stories on abuse in government pensions. Mr. Frank, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Great to be with you, Brad. Thanks for having me. Sure. I know it's a slow season out there for guys like you today. So uh, let, <laughs> let me start sort of backwards here, Tom, with uh, with FEMA first. You've written about sure. that most recently. You describe a, a bipartisan effort in Congress, both the House and the Senate, I think, to refill the FEMA <clears throat> disaster fund. But that hasn't happened yet. What What's the holdup in making that happen, at least at this point? Well, it's actually think of it more as a Florida effort that happens to be bipartisan. You have Florida's two senators, Marco Rubio and Rick Scott, and one of its newly elected House members, Jared Moskowitz, who is head of emergency management in Florida, mm-hmm. have introduced the same bill basically to put uh, $11.5 billion back in the FEMA Disaster Relief Fund, which is the big fund that FEMA uses to pay for cleaning up debris and rebuilding roads and houses and helping individuals and mm-hmm. so forth. So, uh, yes, the FEMA administrator, Deanne Criswell, said as long ago as April publicly that the fund is going to run out of money soon. Mm-hmm. But the, the administration has not made a request to Congress for emergency funding, and that's usually when funds are about to run dry and more money is needed. It's the administration that makes a request. Deanne Criswell and and nobody has really explained what's keeping the administration from making a request. Hmm. So that is why you had the Florida senators and the Florida congressmen putting their own bills in to try to get some money in. Mm -hmm. So FEMA has a couple of different ways it can basically delay running out of money, and the method it's used in the past, it goes by the term immediate needs funding, which Mm -hmm. means basically FEMA stops paying for 
you know, rebuilding the bridge in Louisiana that got destroyed five mm-hmm. years ago mm-hmm. and reserves all its money just to pay for the disasters that are unfolding right now. Mm. So to, you know, clean things up, give people a little money so they can find a place to live, and basically it's emergency-only funding. Mm-hmm. So that's what FEMA's been doing so far, and I don't know if they're going to get to the point where they actually invoke that immediate needs funding. They have not so far, as far as I know, and it's it remains to be seen what happens. Uh, and it's it's uh, confusing to me how you you know you have a rare bipartisan effort at least from the Florida contingent uh, trying to make this happen, and yet there's you know a signal I guess that's got to come from the White House to some extent uh, saying we need more money in this fund, and you even have the head of uh, FEMA saying we need more money in this fund, and yet it's not happening. It feels like we're going to wait until a disaster strikes. And then we'll get together and, and, you know, fight in Congress over, you know, whether this happens or not. Uh, is that about right? Well, you're right. It, the only thing that's not right there is that the FEMA has not actually said we need more money in the fund. Mm. They just said we're going to run out. Deanne Griswold okay. said last week uh-huh. uh, we're going to run out in mid to late August, which right. is now a few weeks away. Right. But she did not say please give us more money, here's our budget request. And I think without that, it's hard to get a vote in Congress. And and just for context, FEMA has made, or actually the administrations of President Trump, Obama, going back for years, have all made requests from Congress Mm -hmm. for emergency money for the disaster fund. And these usually get approved, you know, without any objection. Mm -hmm. I think that the... The idea of emergency funding right now is a little trickier because um, the, the federal government is under some restrictions on, uh, as a result of the debt ceiling uh, bill, yeah. Uh, yeah. debt ceiling agreement. Mm-hmm. And um, so you have some people who say, well, if we're going to make it FEMA emergency aid only, let's just do it a, what they call a clean bill, nothing but money for FEMA. But then there are a lot of people who say, no, no. We got to have money for Ukraine. We got to have money for this and that. And you know, any time in Congress you get what they call a must-pass spending mm-hmm. bill, mm-hmm. that is is like ringing a bell, saying, "Okay, it's it's chow time, folks. Right. Come and and make, get your what do you want? Get it in, and <laughs> right. we'll we'll turn this into a multi-billion-dollar bill." Mm-hmm. Well, and some of those uh, must-pass bills are now also at risk uh, over this fight uh, from the uh, earlier threat at uh, defaulting on the uh, on the debt ceiling and so forth. You report, Tom Frank, that um, FEMA continues to work on nearly 1,000 disasters, a number, by the way, that I had no idea about, uh, with some of those disasters now more than 20 years old. You state that the federal agency is dealing with at least three disasters in every state and U.S. territory, including Puerto Rico, Guam, American Samoa. A depletion of its funding, you note, could be especially difficult for Florida, which is still rebuilding from last year's Hurricane Ian. I think that was the last time we talked to you, Thomas. One of the most destructive storms in U.S. history. Help me understand how much of that difficulty, specifically in Florida, is simply due to the destruction of Ian versus is the collapse of the state's insurance market in recent years. Oh, it's the, the insurance market is, is not relevant here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really just because of the sheer amount of damage mm-hmm. that Ian caused. 
caused. You said you heard, I heard you say fifty billion. Right. I, I actually have heard higher figures, like a hundred billion. I mm-hmm. think some of it depends on whether you're talking about insured losses mm-hmm. or just overall losses. So, like a you know a bridge that gets destroyed that is not insured, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to people's homes. So the issue with the Florida insurance is just plays no part in in the issue of disaster funding from FEMA in mm-hmm. Florida and. You know, Ian was, as you say, one of the most destructive disasters in U.S. history, and it's going to cost billions and billions of dollars of, you know, federal taxpayer dollars to rebuild. And this goes back to the immediate needs funding. If FEMA goes that route, it's basically going to say to Florida, say, okay, all those projects we're about to give you money for, about to prove, stop. We're on hold. Mm. Well, I, I, I'm, I, you know, looking, moving forward. Then, I am concerned because you, you heard all of those in, in the intro. The, you know, the various folks in Florida saying that they right. can't afford insurance or they can't yeah. find it or whatever. What is happening to that Florida insurance market? I know that the GOP-controlled state legislature has taken several actions to try to stabilize the uh, market. Uh, DeSantis thinks it will work as long as, quote, knock on wood, no new storms uh, slam the state this year. What what has the state done to bring back those insurers, the ones that seem to be leaving anyway right now? What's he done to bring them back? And, and is he right? Will they suddenly be coming back after storm season this year? Well, the recent news, as you pointed out, involving farmers, one of the nation's largest insurance companies, and AAA, is is the opposite of what the governor and the state legislature envisioned happening mm-hmm. when they had a special session back in December and enacted a couple of laws aimed at bringing insurers back. Um, those are very, very bad signals. Florida basically has two problems with the insurance industry. One is... Of course, it's, you know, it's a peninsula just sitting out there in the ocean, mm-hmm. uh, like a, a hurricane magnet. So it is extremely <laughs> exposed. And the other problem is, is a legal problem having to do with some of the way, uh, the way some statutes and case law have emerged through the courts in Florida that in effect, um, encourage homeowners to file lawsuits against their insurance company saying basically the claims payment you're offering me is not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what the legislature did and what the, the legislation governor DeSantis signed in December aims to remove that incentive. Mm-hmm. In other words, it makes it much harder to sue for a homeowner to sue their insurance company to get a higher claims payment. So that is a reasonable reform, I think, mm-hmm. but it's also going to take a long time to start to take effect mm. because the legal system is, is still overloaded with complaints. Yeah. And, you know, laws in general take, a, you know, a couple of years to take effect. So, um, but even if it, it does take effect and start to have a good effect, Florida's never going to be, um, you know, Nebraska of, of hurricanes. Mm. It's just always going to be highly exposed. Mm-hmm. And the amount of property in the hurricane zone in Florida is, 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 is there's no state even close to it. Because mm. in Florida, everyone lives on the coast. 
Um, And when you think about a state like Louisiana or Texas, um, you know, there's a significant population on the coast. But, you know, a lot of people live in places like Dallas and and, Mm -hmm. uh, El El Paso that are nowhere near, have no hurricane vulnerability. But in Florida, everyone's exposed. And, um, you know, property is very valuable there, so it's very expensive to insure. But it does it does seem sort of like a canary in the coal mine. In other words, I'm not trying to pick on uh, Florida here specifically, but it sounds like, you know, as these disasters are getting worse, getting more frequent, not just hurricanes, not just Florida, but, you know, flooding, fires, tornadoes, all of which seem to be increasing. I mentioned about the the frequency of the billion dollar disasters, you know, becoming shorter and shorter. You know, I, so I, I feel like we can look at Florida, maybe learn learn something from them for the rest of the country, uh, you know, in, term, in, in terms of uh, the exodus of, of the insurers there from that market, you know, especially homeowners, so many retirees on, on fixed incomes in Florida who simply can't afford 40, uh, yeah. a 40% yeah. rate hike. Is this something we should notice as far as this not only being a Florida problem, not only being an insurance problem, that but one that could soon affect the housing market, become a housing market problem? Because if you can't get insurance, you can't get a mortgage. Am I right to connect those dots? You are. And I think the phrase you use, canary in a coal mine, is completely appropriate. Um, the only thing I'd add to that is that it's a canary in the coal mine for uh, hurricane-prone states. California is the canary in the coal mine for fire, wildfire-prone <laughs> right, states. Right, right. And so the people in Colorado and Oregon and Washington should be watching California. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a similar kind of uh, similar scenario unfolding there. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, really what you're starting to see happen is that the insurance industry is becoming aware of climate risk, and they're starting to incorporate that into their prices. Mm-hmm. And if someone has to pay $7,000 for their home, uh, you know, on the coast of Florida, maybe that's what it should pay. Um, and this is the reality, is that, you know, the insurance committee, insurance industry, I know a lot of people hate it, but mm-hmm. one thing it does very well is that it prices risk. That's, that's all it does. Yeah. And when the insurance industry starts increasing your premium, um, they're not doing it because they just want to scam you. Uh, they're doing it because that's what they, you know, their actuaries and their algorithms and so forth right. think the risk is to your home. And you're seeing that happening, as you say, in, uh, in a lot of states. Um, in fact, it, it happened uh, very recently in Colorado, uh, over wildfires mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, one of the stories in Colorado is that there's been all this development in recent years in, you know, what used to be the woods, because mm-hmm. they're, they're fabulous in Colorado, mm-hmm. but if you build a house in the woods on a mountain slope, you're building it in a wildfire zone, yep. and uh, Colorado had a couple of very bad wildfires in the past year, and yep. so insurers start raising their rates, they start leaving the state, canceling policies, non-renewing policies. Um, it's, yeah, it's happening in a lot, of, a, more and more states. The, and it's a trend that is not going to be reversed. 
Yeah, and there are not a lot of climate change deniers in the insurance actuarial business, it seems to me. Florida has set up, uh, in the meantime, as all the insurers are leaving there, has set up a state-operated sort of insurer of last resort. California, I believe, has a similar uh, state-run earthquake insurance uh, vehicle. Uh, How are those state options working out in places like Florida and elsewhere? Is that a backstop that uh, homeowners can rely on? Well, it is a backstop, um, and it's it's a so most states have what you just call an insurer of last resort for people who can't get insurance mm-hmm. elsewhere. Um, and in Florida, the number of policies that the Florida it's called Florida Citizen Insurance uh, issues has gone from about four hundred thousand policies three years ago to one point three million policies, mm-hmm. according to the most recent report, mm-hmm. and. That is, you know, a reflection of the insurance crisis in Florida. And you've had similar trends in California. And one thing that's um, really, I think a lot of people don't get about the insurance industry, at least the proxy insurance industry, Mm -hmm. is that it is subsidized by state residents. And the way that works is if, let's say, when the Florida state chartered insurance program mm-hmm. runs out of money to pay claims. Right. That's their insurer of last resort. The, 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 the insurer of last resort yeah. runs out of money. Right. So, you know, if it was an insurance company, they just declare insolvency and that would be that, but they can't declare insolvency. So instead, they have the state granted authority to impose surcharges and assessments on every single insurance policy in the state. Mm. So you, in effect, have you know, homeowners, car owners, yep. all sorts of people are, are really are the financial backstop yep. to these state chartered insurance. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people understand that, uh, you know, and maybe that's a good policy decision, maybe it's not, but I don't think people are aware of, of the way these programs operate and that uh, it's really just spreading the risk to an entire state, right, spreading right. the cost to the entire state. Whereas uh, people are saying, well, well, you know, why worry? We can always get insurance ultimately with the state. Well, that all raises everybody's rates, even if you don't have yes. insurance with the states. Very quickly, Thomas, uh, I, I got just a minute or two here, so I'm saving the biggest, most difficult questions for, for uh, uh, quick answers. Is there something that can or should be done at the federal level, not just to shore up things like FEMA when there's a, an emergency, but is there anything that can be adopted at the federal level to sort of prevent states like Florida with leadership often beholden to fossil fuel interests from actually harming themselves and then, you know, sort of leaving the federal government to literally clean up after them? Is there anything that can be done? Let's pretend we didn't have a dysfunctional Congress what could they do to to sort of protect states from themselves? So I'll give you one example of something that FEMA has done under this administration. Mm-hmm. FEMA is uh, really, and then actually the Biden administration as a whole, is uh, really promoting modern building codes, which mm-hmm. is certainly not the sexiest issue in the world. But modern building codes are a very effective way at reducing your property damage because uh, a, a home or a building built to today's building codes mm-hmm. is going to be much more uh, resilient. And you saw some of this in Ian, where some of these, you know, you had these towns on the west coast of Florida where they didn't get hurt because they're all built to modern building codes. So mm-hmm. 
anyway, what FEMA has done is they have encouraged or incentivized um, states to adopt modern building codes by giving them priority for certain FEMA mitigation grants. Mm. So, in other words, if you have a modern building code, you're going to get, you know, 10 points, say, mm-hmm. in the, you know, 100-point system that FEMA uses to rank things. So that is the kind of thing that, that the federal government can do is create incentives, yeah. establish programs, and, and that, you know, using basically a, a big carrot. And and yet, whenever these programs come up, uh, you know, I hear these you know, complaints, so it's, it's big government, they're telling us how to build they're you know oh they're wasting our money talking about you know buildings what does that have to do with climate change uh it's it's kind of maddening and uh ultimately self-destructive it seems for many of these people many of these states uh finally thomas uh are these states and frankly our federal government ready for what seems to be coming in the wake of global heating and our climate crisis or are these just sort of bridges that we're going to have to cross once we get to them, as, you know, we sort of hope that those bridges also haven't been wiped out by that time. No, I don't think states, and this is not partisan, because California is a Democratic state and Florida is a Republican state, and mm-hmm. they're both in bad shape, or the federal government is, is anywhere near ready for the kind of disaster damage that the country might be facing. Um, there's a lot of reports out there saying the same thing, that it's going to be bad. But, you know, changing policies, changing laws, that's a, that's a much more difficult po- process than writing a report talking about which laws need to be changed. Yep. Actually, getting it done is not easy. And that is, of course, why we need eenews.net. That's E-N-E News, where uh, Thomas Frank writes. You can follow his work over there. And also on the Twitters at by Tom Frank. That's B-Y Tom Frank. Uh, Thomas Frank, always great speaking with you, sir. And I uh, sort of look forward to it in the future. I'm sure we won't have a difficult storm season at all. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. Thanks as always, Brad. You bet. Knock on wood. Okay. Thank you, uh, brother. And, uh, and and by the way, uh, I should thank him for joining us from his uh, storm shelter, apparently, because <laughs> with that, my apologies for that echo. I'm not sure if he was in an empty missile silo there or something <laughs> at times, but uh, hopefully he was understandable nonetheless. Yeah, you know, now something that Tom mentioned that jumped out at me is that he said, which I think we all kind of understand, yeah. is that this insurance problem, this insurance issue with disasters is not going to go away, um, that it's not going to get better mm-hmm. with time. And I think it's a couple of options we should be considering, everybody in every state, mm-hmm. uh, since you know state residents mm-hmm. are the subsidizers of the state insurance of last resort, mm-hmm. then I think uh, residents need to make sure that their elected officials are taking a hard look at zoning and where they put mm-hmm. allow building to occur where development is allowed to occur because you're going to be paying for whatever disaster happens in that area where development should not be happening. Which I should say is almost the least that can be done to prevent new building in dangerous areas. Problem is, we got a whole bunch of building that is already in dangerous areas that sort of need to be evacuated, it seems to me, at some point. Yeah, managed retreat. And it's a whole bunch of rich people who live in a lot of those places on the coast, which is just another reason, by the way, that politicians don't like to talk about this stuff because it's. You know, the rich people on the coast who are going to be most effective uh, affected, who can afford more expensive insurance, 
but a lot of them don't get it. Yeah, and they they don't want to move, and it's it's going to be a big mess, and it's going to take a lot of time and attention, which of course you know we don't really have right now in the House Republicans. You know they're busy doing culture war nonsense, not addressing these actual issues that need some direct federal involvement in policies, in uh, prevention, in resilience, in rapid response to bridge all of these gaps. Doing culture war nonsense or saying that none of this is a real problem at all and that all the scientists across the world, tens of thousands of them warning about climate change and what we need to do about it, are all just grifters. Because you know that good grift of being a scientist, boy howdy. Do, do they make out sweet, sweet money, those scientists? <laughs> yeah, they? unlike, of course, the fossil fuel industry, which really poor, should be paying poor, for yeah. all of this with their record profits that they got last year. Yeah. All right. Yep. We got to get out. Uh, anything else? Yes. Actually, it is your birthday. Yes. And I would like to say personally, happy birthday, Brad, and to invite everyone who's listening yeah. to take an opportunity to stop by bradblog.com right. and wish Brad a happy birthday. All right. Birthday. There you go. Yes. I did make a, <laughs> a, 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 a sort of a happy birthday to me post, Good. which uh, you'll find at the top of bradblog.com. Thank you for that, Des. Very yes. much appreciated. And thanks to uh, Desi, our producer, and to my guest today, Thomas Frank of E&E News. And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it or anyone we have ever done for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you kind enough to uh, stop by bradblog.com slash donate or just go to bradblog.com up on the top right there. You'll see a nice, easy-to-fill-out form, any amount you like. You can make a one-time donation. You can make uh, uh, a sign-up for a monthly automated subscription, which we could really use right now. Uh, so your help is greatly appreciated. That's bradblog.com. Open to all. Drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons, I am simply the Brad Blog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com/donate.